CBP stories are behind the scenes looks at the lives of your peers who have had an inspiring journey to become who they are today. We hope that their experiences and insight will help you better yourself in some way. Cheers. Hey, Marty, it is absolutely fantastic to see you today. It's not very often. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Your, your voice cut out on me for a minute, but I'm, I'm sure it's my Cro-Magnon uh, computer skills. So I'm doing great. It's great to be here and great to be talking to you, especially. Yeah, you've been one of my favorite people to connect with during the pandemic. And you and I first started having conversations even pre-pandemic. But every time I talk to you, I learn something unique. And your positivity just either radiates through the phone, it comes through the screen. You've been such a pleasure to get to know the past year. Well, thank you very much. And I feel that I have really enjoyed getting to know you over the past year. It's been great fun. I think you're a, a wonderful dude with a big heart and you're doing great stuff for our trade. So great I appreciate that. I wish I, was, I was saying I was wish I wish I was in your neighborhood, my old neighborhood, and we could do this face to face. But whatever. Well, I'm looking forward to having a beer yeah. absolutely this September. So that's gonna be a good time. But yeah. you mentioned, you know, you wish you were in my neighborhood. You know, I live in Norfolk, Virginia. I was curious, how do you say it? How do you say the city name? Norfolk, Virginia. It, it, it's so funny because everyone pronounces it different. It's Norfolk, Norfolk, Norfolk. Everybody no. says it slightly different. So I always like to hear how other people, especially ones from here, pronounce it. Or Norfolk, yes. Norfolk, there we go. That's the real Norfolk. way to say it. Yes. So, but Marty, how long ago did you live here in Virginia? Um, I grew up in the... Right on the Norfolk, Virginia Beach border near Newtown Road. You might, you know, know where that is. But um, and then I went to ODU on the extended uh, multi-year plan. <laughs> uh, but I left there. I moved to Denver in 95. So we've recently hit the 25-year mark in Denver, which is really hard to believe. But it's been now, great. were you in the beer industry at all prior to moving to Denver? Or were you more so a connoisseur of sorts? Well, I was definitely a fan of, of, and actually what got me into craft beer was um, a friend of mine turned me on to some uh, beer from Grant's, Burt Grant's in the 80s, and I bought Charlie Papazian's Joy of Homebrewing book, and then I went back to ODU after flunking out <laughs> for playing in bands and not really paying attention to school and doing a lot of beer research. Um, but then I took a class at ODU in feature writing. Um, and then the, the point of the class was to publish a story in a local publication. I published a story about homebrewing. And then I started writing a beer column for the Mason Crown, the student newspaper. And uh, so I, and I, and, a, and this was, this was the crucial connector. I was playing this in the stairwell of the arts and letters building at ODU because uh, it's an eight-story building with great reverb in the stairwell. And while doing it one evening, a guy opened the door and came out to talk to him. I thought he was going to you know, tell me I had to split. But he taught a feature writing class that I ended up taking. So harmonica, beer, and joy of homebrewing are what got me into the beer trade. So I absolutely love it. So how old were you when you learned how to play that harmonica? Oh, about 15 my dad gave me one for, for Christmas. And was Pretty that the first instrument you learned how to play? 
Yes, pretty much. Yep. And I know your life is a big, you know, intertwined web of music and beer. Yes. Were you writing songs about beer in those early days in college years, or did it, that kind of elevate a little bit once you got into Colorado in the beer industry? Well, um, my first band was a musical comedy group called CJ and the PhDs that my brother fronted. And at the time he worked in a laboratory and we all wore lab coats and we did parodies of popular songs. So I played harmonica and sang some songs. And um, we used to play at Friar Tucks right on Hatton Boulevard. Now it's not gone, of course, but, um, and I met my wife through that gig while I'm portraying Durwood, Pre Durwood Presley, Elvis Presley's lost illegitimate <laughs> and but anyway, that's I, I got started in a musical comedy group, and then I formed a rockabilly band, and did a bunch of hillbilly bands, and had some punk rock bands, and punkish bands. <clears throat> yeah, so but I, I sort of didn't start writing beer songs until I got further into beer. So in North in, in Norfolk, maybe the last I published my first beer column in 1991, and. I started writing songs about beer around then and my bands back then played, we would play at Kogan's and, you know, we opened some shows at the boathouse and it was a lot of fun. Well, unlike Friar Tucks, Kogan's is still here and they still make delicious pizza. So oh yeah. Something that still remains. Yep. I would last Although time. They I, don't have any punk rock shows anymore. No, they don't. It, it was a tiny little music Mecca, but last time I went back there, I stopped in for a beer and a pizza and a guy that was a fan of mine, was having a beer and a pizza and we reconnected on the patio. It was great. Did he recognize you or how did that come up? I recognized him. Yeah. And he was with his daughter at the time. Last time I saw him, he did not, he had a daughter who's a young adult now. It was fantastic. So oh, that's great. It was awful. Well, so from Kogan's to beer writing, why did you move out to Colorado in the first place? Uh, my wife's mom had moved here to be close after my wife's name is Lisa, and after her father died, the great Jerry Wolsey, uh, Betty moved to Denver because Lisa's older sister lived here with her family. And we would come and visit and love the place, and I wanted to – she wanted to move closer to her family, and I wanted to move somewhere that had a, a beer industry that I could get into, and I moved here with the goal of somehow getting in the beer trade and putting my English degree to use, and uh, so that's what – that is here, but it was Lisa's brilliant idea. I love it. So you were right in for the paper here in Virginia. You moved out to Colorado. When you arrived there, I mean, everybody was getting excited about the beer industry back then. You know, what oh, yeah. steps did you take to first get involved? Like, did you know what to do? You almost sound like one of those musicians in the 80s who would move out to L.A., show up on Sunset Strip, say, hey, I've got a guitar. Where do I play? You know, what was that like for you to get your foot in the door? Yeah, well, I did have a guitar with me, and that was the that was the side gig <coughs> goal. But um, I reached out <coughs> to the local publication. There's an alternative weekly here called Westward, and I bugged that editor for about um, six months. I sent him clips from the Mason Crown at ODU and some stuff I published in the Virginia Pilot, and bugged him, and then reached out to some beer publications at the time and offered to write about the Denver beer scene. Um, so that started, that got me into writing about beer and writing about music. And then um, while trying to find someone who would do publicity for my band, um, the publicist in Nashville I reached out to said, 
that's the best pitch I've ever received from a band. You ought to be your own publicist. And I thought, hmm, all right. So I'll try that. And then I started reaching out to breweries to see if I could help them with their publicity. So I made the jump from writing about breweries to writing for breweries and be doing the publicity and crafting ideas and coming up with funny concepts and copywriting and that kind of stuff. What were some of the early breweries you had an opportunity to work with? A Great Divide was one of the first ones to give me a shot. And I, I owe Brian Dunn and his wife at the time, Tara, a great debt of gratitude for that. Um, and my band was actually rehearsing in their brewery. Uh, they had a lot of empty space. Their brewery had been a band rehearsal space between being a yogurt factory and a brewery. So I said, how about you let me my band rehearsed in here. So we would rehearse there, but I started, they gave me my first shot. It, it is weird how beer and music are so um, carefully intertwined in, in much of my career out here. Well, <laughs> so, they're two of the best things in the world, of course. Yes, they are. Yeah. But so I started working for him, um, actually coined their slogan that they still use today, great minds drink alike. Um, so that was the, the first sort of slogan job I ever had which I'm very proud of. Uh, so I started work, working for him and worked for some other breweries doing little jobs. And, and then the brewer at Oscar Blues, his name was Brian Lutz. I'd written about his brewery. He had a little Belgian place out here that was really great. And um, he got me on board at Oscar Blues when they started to can their beer. So I was their lead singer idea man for the first seven years of that effort. And that was very successful. And I, I had a lot of fun and I generated a lot of interest and and shook up the world on as far as crack cans and craft beer went. It was, it was a lot of fun. It's very punk rockish too. Absolutely. So a lot of people have ideas. We all wish we could get paid for our ideas, but somehow you made that a reality. Why do you think your ideas caught on? And why do you think these breweries were willing to, you know, bring you on to help them create unique campaigns like you've done? Um, let me get, adjust my seat here. Um, well, it helped a lot that I was a double agent of sorts. Um, I, I have always been a freelance writer, never been on staff anyplace. When I moved out here, I vowed to never have a boss again, because in Tidewater, the biggest deterrent to my success in every job I had was my boss. <laughs> so, uh, I vowed to not have a boss again. So, but as a freelancer, you don't eat if you can't successfully pitch stories. And for many, for a few, but the first few years, you know, I do remember my wife once when we were doing our taxes, she said, I know you work really hard, but does this really qualify as working for a living? Because <laughs> there, there wasn't much money coming in, but but God bless her, she stuck with me and it worked out pretty good. But, but it helped that I knew how to pitch stories. That was a big help. I knew what editors wanted and journalists wanted in a story. So that was the biggest help. But um, I've also been a comedian for much of my life, and that proved very helpful, too, because um, humor is one of the greatest skills a business or a brewery can employ. And sadly, these days, it's not in as much use as it used to be. But so I had that in my pocket, um, I think. And I had an English degree and I was crazy about beer. So. I think those things all combined to make me a rather unique 
uh, front man and publicist for breweries. Now, when you say comedian, were you actually doing any stand-up comedy or is it more so just a funny outlook you took on life? Well, the band that I played in, CJ and the PGs, we wrote parodies of songs. <clears throat> so, um, you know, the romantics, that's what I like about you, became that's what I like about shoes. And it was a spoof of, <laughs> of, of Imelda Marcos at the time. <laughs> and and we had uh, songs that would probably get us, you know, canceled on social media that spoofed other songs like... Um, but it, it was all it was all a it was a musical comedy act and and I also wrote humor humorous pieces for the school paper, um, so I've always had an angle on you know I like to laugh and my brother's really funny and my parents are really funny and so that was part of it. But I've never done stand up but I would definitely have you know made a few dollars as an as a comedian musical comedy guy. No, I think everything you do goes hand in hand. So looking at your career, getting involved in Colorado, you were involved in something that was almost instrumental in the craft beer industry as we know it today. How did you get hooked into Oscar Blues in the early 2000s? Well, like uh, Brian Lutz was a brewer. Um, right. And I'd gotten to know him and I'd written about Oscar Blues when I was writing a beer column for uh, the Celebrator Beer News. <laughs> so they got in touch with me and said um, they had gotten – uh, some info from Cask, who had just created the first micro canning system. Uh, initially, they created it for homebrewers, and they had started pitching it to breweries at the time. And about what year was this, Marty? Was it early 2000s? 2000, the summer of 2002, they reached out to me um, to, to help them with publicity. And their idea at the time was to use the cans as a way to lure people from Boulder and Longmont up to Lyons, which was a little town of 600 people at the time, as a way to lure them up to the brewery to get beers and cans. And the cans were the goal. Their goal was it'll make the beer more portable, which it really did. But being the journalist idea guy that I was, I, I saw a much bigger uh, possibility of it um, and made it, well, just found out a better way to tell the story. I mean, I guess what I like about my job it's helping breweries and other businesses figure out what their story is and how to properly tell it and who to tell it to. So this seemed like a much bigger thing to me uh, because it was very much going against the grain of an all glass, all bottles trade. So I hung a name on it, the canned beer apocalypse and made it a uh, sort of David versus Goliath story and that we were out to overthrow craft beer packaging. <laughs> So you were already thinking big in cans. Yes. Filling two cans at a time with a tabletop machine. So, but people appreciated. Everyone loves the David versus Goliath story. And we made a point to make it funny and not be uh, critical of bottles, but instead tout the benefits of cans. So we didn't offend too many people, though we did offend some people that put their beer bottles Um but so that was my, you know, I think my, I was, my title was lead singer and idea man. I was one of the four guys that founded the whole thing. They had a brewery at the, a, a brew pub at the time, but we were the packaging part. So, but yeah, so it was an excellent fit for what I hoped, wanted to do with my job. It's hard to believe we've only been experiencing beer in cans for about 20 years now. I mean, mm -hmm. just 
literally you're talking 2002 you helped with the canned beer apocalypse idea it almost could be a parody to the current situation we have right now with all the the aluminum shortages going on that could almost be dubbed the canned beer apocalypse in itself and yeah. I, I know i have heard people call it like what's the canned apocalypse or just things like that in itself yeah well it's it's been a great source of pride and pleasure for me over the years to see just an ongoing number of breweries who told me years ago they would never put their beer in cans to see their beer in cans. It's just this past weekend, uh, I was in a beer store out in South Denver, and my wife and I and a buddy were just, you know, really knocked out by the beer list. And all of a sudden, Lisa taps me on the shoulder, and she's holding a six-pack of Sanfrion beer, their Saison, in cans, and a another package of the Duchess de Burgonia in cans. And I left cans of Oscar Blues beer at both of those places in 2002. <laughs> and they all laughed at me and said mean things and snickered and talked about how Americans didn't know diddly about beer or cans. And uh, so, yeah, it is an amazing thing how the reach, what we did there, how far that reach has gone. It's, it's great. That's really interesting because I can honestly, I've never seen Duchess in a can before, but that was one of the beers that was instrumental in making me enjoy sour beers a little bit more oh, in my early days of drinking. Me too. That's an awesome beer. We, we visited the brewery and it was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It's something. Cool. I remember one time, Marty, you'll appreciate this. My brother's a concert promoter here in Virginia and he had a show at the Tap House. Did you ever play awesome. Tap House back in the day? I think uh, it was I, there. I know the place. Yes. Yeah. I have played so, yeah. He was playing a show at Tap House, and it was his friend's band visiting from Boston. He went to the College of Berkeley in Boston, not the Berkeley in California, but Berkeley School of Music in Boston. <laughs> and his friend's band was playing at the Tap House. So he signaled to me that the lead singer needed a beer. You know, when you get a lead singer a beer, you normally get them something simple. But I was drinking a Duchess that day, so I figured why not get her a Duchess as well? And yeah. when you give someone a beer and they take a sip of it, not knowing what to expect, yeah. that mouth puckering look of confusion is ah. definitely something I enjoyed from that day. Did she like it or was she just aghast? Uh, she was thirsty. I think she drank the rest of it. So I'm assuming <laughs> she did. I never really asked her. Well, as a lead singer myself, I applaud you for your taste in lead singer <laughs> beers. That, I, I would love to have someone to hand me a, a duchess on stage. <laughs> No. Absolutely. So let's go to your music for a sec, because I enjoy putting your music on and rocking out while I'm getting a little work done. You just released a pretty impressive compilation of your entire career. What's that one called? Uh, Brood Gold. Winkingly, Brood Gold. <laughs> uh, yes, it's. I, I hit the. I realized I'd been putting out music here for 25 years and drinking songs, beer songs for 25 years, and I thought. Um, this is a pretty big deal to me and my small fan base. So I put that together. I put together a compilation of my best beer and drinking related songs. And that's what's that's brewed gold. Yeah. And with that compilation, I know you always like to help people out. You're donating some of the proceeds to what types of organizations? Well, I did a little something for a venue here that was having some trouble uh, to try to raise some money for them. And I just did a, for two weeks, I offered 50% of the sales to the Pink Boot Society. Um, and then one day where all the sales went to that group. Um, 
the response was not as large as I would have hoped, but I'm trying to help out, you know, and, and fly the flag. I'm a big believer in the Pink Boot Society and what they do. So, yeah, my, I haven't. Those are sort of the unofficial releases of the disc. And starting next week, I'm going to start touting it to beer publications and other beer places. And I do want to have a charity component to it. Um, I really like to maybe partner with Garrett Oliver's Michael Jackson Foundation to try to raise at least some awareness, if not too many dollars. I mean, I'd look, my fan base is small and I, I'm a niche artist. So, um, but yeah, I'm trying to do some good, good things with it. Well, every dollar makes a difference. And I think in the current state of the world right now, it's somewhat challenging to ask people money for money because everybody's just trying to make ends meet in yeah. their own unique way, whatever they're going through. So I think awareness is almost just as valuable because you're spreading Garrett's mission. You're spreading the Pink Boots mission. You're aligning your brand of yourself and your music with the great things that they're both doing. And I think that's just valuable in itself. Well, thank you. Well, and people aren't really uh, paying for music seems to be a... a <laughs> a dying act also sadly but but you know we all got to do something try to help out these are very difficult times and, um and i'm glad to hear you say that because in my in all my years as a craft beer promoter whenever we would do a charitable charitable charity minded events i've always tried to say we can probably we can help you more by raising awareness of your group than we can putting bucks in your pocket but often that awareness is far more valuable than it, it results in an income down the road if it doesn't not, not necessarily do so with the event itself. So, I'm And Marty, that's why we get along. I feel the exact same as you. If I can draw awareness to a good cause, then I feel I've done something worthwhile with my day. And it, the, it'll ultimately come back around. Yeah. Well, I started playing music as a way to uh, provide some joy to my community and help people get through life because music was instrumental and helping to get me through some dark times in my life. Um, so that's that's the task, you know, it's a, it's a good cause. I love it. Now, looking back on the things you've done in the craft beer industry, what are some projects you're most proud of? Um, well, certainly, you know, many years ago, Beer Advocate called me the man who made canned beer cool, <laughs> which uh, that was very flattering. And I'm very proud of that. And I still work for Cask. Global Canning Solutions, who is the inventor, the inventor of micro canning for craft beer and still the leading maker of canning equipment. And it's been fun. I've worked, you know, I was essentially their publicist while working for Oscar Blues the whole time because I spent most of my, the first few years talking about the myths of cans and instead of the beer because people were so shocked or puzzled by, you know, the idea of good beer in a can. I mean, I would, so I'm very proud of that. Um, I, when I I then went to the Wincoop, which was the first brew pub I'd ever set foot in while visiting Denver, and John Hickenlooper and Russell Scherer, their brewer, were heroes of mine. So it was a big thrill to work for them full time for about four years. I was a part time consultant for them for many years and helped them run their Beer Drinker of the Year contest, which was a lot of fun. I was very I was a lot I'm proud of that. But my stint at Wincoop was really fun, and while there I did the Rocky Mountain Oyster Stout spoof that became a beer and was a great deal of fun and continues to be by many people to be called the best craft beer spoof of all time. And that's their comments, not me, but I do, I do agree with <laughs> on that one. Uh, so I'm very proud of that. So that was a lot of fun. But So can you explain a little bit more about what this Rocky Mountain Oyster Stout 
is for anyone who may not be aware? Sure. Well, it started as a joke <laughs> because I was a guest on a beer radio show and one of the breweries had an oyster stout and it was a Colorado brew. And I thought, well, that's kind of weird that a Colorado brewery would do a stout made with oysters. You know, you put the oysters and sometimes the shells in the, they're used in making the beer. So while driving home, I thought, and but the whole time I was trying, it was a very delicious beer by Odell. And I love that brewery, but I thought, I don't know, this just seems kind of off. So while riding home, I, you know, my teenage brain went, ah, here's a better idea. Rocky Mountain Oyster Stout. And if you, if you people listening don't know what those are, those are bull testicles. And for some weird reason, they're a delicacy in Colorado. Um, so by the time I got home, I had conjured up the script for a video spoof and we put it out on April Fool's Day. And, um, it was very, it was, it turned out really good. It was a fast, low budget, uh, quick job that became at the time a very big sensation. Um, so that was, you know, it achieved its goal. My, my job at the Wincoop was to help them reclaim some of their Hickenlooper era glory and mojo because he was a master marketer and a funny guy. And they, he was, but when he got into politics, they lost some of that. So that was part of my job to make them funny and relevant again. So that project served that purpose very well. But and then, Marty, if you don't mind, I would love to play that video real quick, that little promo oh, you created. I never get tired of watching it, Andrew. I'm going to cue it up. I know your Mac's being a little funny today, but at least hopefully you get to hear the audio if it's not showing okay. on your screen. So let's, let's see what happens. Here we go. All right. It's Colorado's first group club. We've been a beer pioneer since our start in 1988. Today we carry on that trailblazer tradition by continuing to introduce new styles of beer. Whenever possible, we use the best local ingredients in these rule-breaking beers, especially when those ingredients have a strong regional flavor. Fried bull testicles or Rocky Mountain oysters are a Colorado favorite. This makes them the perfect ingredient to showcase in a new style of beer we've created, which really pays tribute to one of Colorado's unique culinary jewels. Winco Brewing Company's Rocky Mountain Oyster Stout is made with organic Colorado malts, front range hops, Rocky Mountain water, and bull testicles from free range Colorado cattle. We're adding the Rocky Mountain Oysters whole into the kettle to give the full flavor and nuances into the beer. When making this style of beer, it's important you use the freshest ingredients possible in these testicles. They're very fresh. We also add the Rocky Mountain oysters to the mash tun to get the full flavor and aroma. The result of our efforts is a luscious, creamy stout that delivers loads of flavor. Everything from roasted barley and coffee to chocolate and nuts. Boy, the Winkles really stepped in their game up, making a Rocky Mountain oyster stout. It takes a lot of balls. Winter Brewing Company's Rocky Mountain Oyster Stout. Available April 1st while supplies last. Rocky Mountain Oyster Stout. Have a ball. Marty, that was absolutely hilarious. <laughs> Thank you. How about, well, how about the little junior one? Yeah, you made it as a April Fool's joke, but if I'm not mistaken, they ended up actually brewing some sort of version of the beer. Is that correct? Yes. Um, well, the, the weird part was we got all kinds of calls 
on April 1st and people coming into the brewery to drink the beer. And as you can tell from the view, the, the video, we played it very straight. Um, but that was a bit of an eye opener and um, that people would want to drink such a creation because it didn't sound very attractive to us. <laughs> um, but with that in mind, um, and we kept getting interest and, you know, I got the beer placed on Anderson Cooper's show and uh, like the biggest talk show in the UK where bollocks are a big thing there. And uh, I it literally got press all over the world. Um, but it made me think, you know, why not make the beer? Because so many people, I mean, I had a couple calls, some industry heavies, heroes of mine that said, man, send me a can of that beer. And I said, well, I would love to, but it, doesn't exist. <laughs> you know, we, those cans were just props. Um, so Andy Brown was our head brewer at the time, and he's a wonderful man and a fantastic brewer. And I had to work on him for a while to get him to uh, be willing to make the beer. He was worried it might sully his reputation, and it might have. <laughs> but he put together a delicious recipe, and then we actually made the beer and then released it at that year's Great American Beer Festival. Because, and then again, you know, for me as a publicist, my, my dream is to steal some thunder from, you know, get the limelight, get some attention, have some fun and make people laugh. And we definitely had the longest lines of any table at, at the, the GABF by releasing that beer. And, and Wincoop had always been a popular, it's a, you know, it's an iconic brewery here in Denver, but it created really long lines and tons of interest and, uh, it was a gas. So, it, so how was the beer? Yeah. You know, if you were to rate that beer on something like Untapped or Beer Advocate, you know, what were your thoughts on that drink? Oh, the beer turned out delicious. I mean, it was very good. Uh, it was funny that I remember one of the first comments while serving the beer at the GABF is a woman came up to me and said, "I'm allergic to seafood. Can I drink this beer?" <laughs> Why? Yes, you can. Uh, it's a, it's a, you know, Andy put together a delicious beer to start. So it is a very good beer in itself. And that helped a great deal, but you know, we, we were able to sell it for three or four times per, the, the, per case for any beer we'd ever sold. So it was great in raising, you know, breaking through the threshold of what we could charge for a beer. It got us tons of attention. Um, it got us, attention in place we would never would have gotten it. It got helped us get our beers in places and it made people think about the Wincoop like they used to think of it, that it was a funny, entertaining place that was not afraid to take shots at convention or rattle the, shake the status quo up. And, uh, but yeah, but it's a delicious beer. So, and it continues to be a big thing for them. And they still continue to brew it. They still continue to make it. Yeah. And, and it was great fun for my, you know, teenage brain, just all the puns that I was able to use with it. You know, just like the jingle, when we finished the video, I thought, and we really literally hustled, hustled that together over a course of just a few days. But there's a, one of my neighbors has a recording studio where I recorded. So I, I went up there and brought a guitar and borrowed a little cheap Supro amp with really good uh, vibrato on it and recorded that little jingle with, have a ball. <laughs> <laughs> No, you were ahead of your time for a few reasons on this one. I mean, back then, in, was this 2012, you know, people were putting unique ingredients in beer, but not like they are today. So you were right. definitely testing the boundaries 
for that reason. And also in the video, I noticed it said, you know, limit two per customer. You didn't see that a lot in 2012. And yes. you also mentioned, you know, charging a unique, a higher price for something that's more of a specialty item. And I think we see that a lot today. Yep. So you were definitely leading the charge on a lot of those things. Well, thank you. Well, we were a, a bit out of, and I am, I, I also say that that makes me the inventor of the two pack. That's how we sold that beer. <laughs> <laughs> of course pack. it was sold in the two pack. So, so we looking at two packs and cut them into pairs, you had to sell it by in pairs, right? So you uh, had to. So yes, we, you know, I'm, I appreciate you saying it. We really did. I mean, there were unique ingredients back then. And Sam Calajon, of course, he'd done some cool beers. And, and sure. uh, But it was nothing like today. So it was much more of a shocking. Uh, and no one had put meat in a in a beer um, or that particular meat. Um, but yeah, it was a bit of a rule breaker. But And sometimes when I, you know, I grumble about the things we put in beer today because I feel like uh, we're going too far at times, you know, like, and people say, but wait, how can you, how can you, you know, be skeptical of people putting crazy things in beer when that was, you know, you were putting bull testicles in the beer. Well, that was a joke first. And, and it was a very funny, unique ingredient. And uh, I think that's a key distinction there. Like if, it's one thing to put In, intended humor. Is that the, what we're saying here? Intended humor is okay to do, but when it's, absurd and not a humorous way and that's a different situation yeah well if it's genuinely funny and and maybe it and you know part of that video of course we were making fun of people at the time who were putting unique things in beer right so we were actually committing the sin that we were spoofing you know but but we were taking some shots at the pretensions of you know i mean andy brown he had that part when he you know it, it was a nod to the the cliche brewer with his you know two hands full of hops smelling oh these are very fresh and Andy had lived it like these are very fresh you know so it was pointed but veiled and it was it had a regional flair there were a lot of things at play that made it work I think whereas opposed to just putting stuff in a beer to be different sometimes that works. But sometimes it seems it just comes across as silly or pandering or not as inspired as it could be, you know. So looking at current beer trends right now, I know what's going on in the world of IPAs interests you. What are your thoughts on all the different type of IPAs that exist these days? I wish that somebody in our trade, when the first hazy IPA was made, had said, we really should not call this an IPA because it's not. Instead, we have rolled with that highly inappropriate term on beers. And I like some hazy beers. I do enjoy many of them. Codename Superfan here in Colorado is a great example. Juicy bits, you know. But to make it to take a classic beer style marked for its clarity and its bitterness, and then remove the clarity and the bitterness and make it taste like juice has done great damage to the concept of what an IPA is to me. I think our trade is it's not fair to consumers. We've done them a disservice by putting, well, I, I, like I mentioned earlier, I just read an article about IPAs for beginners. Well, 
some of the beers in that list, along with Bell's Too Hearted, classic, are beers that are made with fruit puree and tropical hops and lactose, and there's 20 IBUs, and it looks like a milkshake. Well, what it's very confusing to the consumer. Now, someone goes and tries a sour fruit smoothie IPA, and they go, oh, I love this. And then they go buy Sierra Nevada Torpedo and go, this is awful, or vice versa. It's very confusing. I, I think our trade has made a mistake there. Well, I'm going to play devil's advocate with you and kind of turn the tables on you because you're an idea guy. What if you had been the person to come up with the term hazy? You would have been like, hmm, what if we just call this weird beer that we're making that's slightly not clear and has lots of fruit and kind of like an IPA? What if we just call it a hazy IPA? Do you think we'd sell more? Because in my mind, that almost is a very Marty Jones idea. <laughs> well, thank you. Um I, I think the beer purist in me would not have taken that route. But, and see, this is what really frustrates me about it. This was a grand opportunity to create a new style of beer, something that would be accurate in its name, that would not have confused the consumer about true IPAs, and created a whole new niche that would have been, that would have opened up the possibilities for craft beer. I mean, there are so many other options, you know, just like the idea of a black IPA, no, or, or a white stout, That's two of the silliest terms in craft beer. Just Well, I appreciate the term a Cascadian dark ale for a yes, black IPA. there you go. It's I think stuff. it's very romantic. It's, you know, might not be as sellable, but I absolutely love it. Yeah, and it, it's a little stuffy, but yes. But there are other ways. There were so many, and I'm I'm just amazed too that breweries out there aren't coming up with fresher names for what they're doing. You know, a sour milkshake smoothie IPA. Uh, that's just it's inaccurate. It's it's sullying you know a classic beer style and confusing the consumer. And, but more importantly, it's cheating those brewers of a chance to have some great fun and come up with something fresh. Now, wearing your promoter hat, have you thought of what you would call some of these newer styles? Um, cloudy beers that taste like fruit juice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, that's the descriptor. That would not be the name. Um, and again, I really like some of those. Some of those are transcendent. They are just exceptional. There's a brewery out here, Cerebro, that makes some just goosebumping New England style IPAs. But but no, I, I guess I've spent too much time thinking how they shouldn't have used that term instead of thinking of an alternative. But um, but I do, as I mentioned, there is one, another term I'd like our trade to stop using. May I talk about it? Absolutely. Alcoholic beverages. <laughs> the worst possible term to use for beer. It's a horrible term. It's insulting to people that have a serious health issue, alcoholism. Um, it pigeonholes, it's, it's a pejorative term of the highest order. It doesn't really apply when 
94% of the people that consume beer are not alcoholics. And it just a, it's a dumb, dumb term on many, many levels. Um, so I wish our trade would drop that term. I can respect that. And the more you say it after you've just kind of walked me through it, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's a little, it's not the best, to say the least. It's what? It's not the best, to say the no, least. I mean, I was, I was thinking earlier, like, if, if there's one lesson we could learn from the fast food industry, they do not refer to Whoppers and Big Macs as heart disease sandwiches. Okay. <laughs> but, but that's what we do when we call fermented beverages alcoholic beverages. It's one thing, I guess, to say they contain alcohol. They are alcohol-containing beverages. But that's a terrible term, too, because generally it's 5 or 6% of the what you're drinking is alcohol. So if anything, if we're going to base the term on what makes up the beverage we're drinking, we'd call it water before we would call it an alcoholic beverage, right? It just That's an interesting point because in the current state of things, the non-alcoholic beverage segment is blowing up right now, but it's essentially the opposite. We're still calling them non-alcoholic, so the term alcoholic still is being used. Well, you've raised a great point. How silly is that? These Those are drinks that I think a lot of people who are trying to not drink can drink. I know some alcoholics don't want it. And there's a small amount of alcohol. And you don't want any of that, and that makes sense. But, yes, there, there's – even in that case, it's a defeating term. It's, it's the absolute wrong – alcohol-free would make sense or non-alcohol beer. But, yeah, non-alcoholic, I don't so, know. It's a terrible to term. To get out of that alcoholic conversation right now, I want to ask you something else that's a little controversial in the craft beer space. Okay. You know, beer and politics, what are your opinions? You know, because you've gotten involved in a presidential race. I mean, you've, you're a very political man yourself, but yep. what are your thoughts on when we involve a political awareness or mission in, in the beer space? Well, many people, there's the old adage, beer and politics don't mix but they have mixed since the founding of our country. Our, country. our forefathers met in the pubs of Philadelphia and New York and other places and wrote the documents that became our government. So beer and politics can mix. And oftentimes discussing politics over a beer or two with someone you don't agree with is a fantastic way to find some common ground, a thing in very short supply in America these days. Um, and I think our trade has had a horrible year, just like the rest of the world. Our country's lost over a half a million Americans and the world has been suffering. So we have to be, I understand not wanting to add anything that would shrink your opportunity to make a living. But I think craft beer has, has missed on opportunities to, to enlarge our audience and to reach more people by being a little bit political. So I think sometimes if done properly, you can mix beer and politics and everybody wins. But that does require some risk, but I think the risks are smaller than most breweries think they are. And the upside is greater. 
and to go back to what we talked about earlier, there's just a lot of awareness in the craft beer space. So even if you get involved in the political space, not necessarily supporting one party or the other, you can still draw awareness to a lot of good. And you and I, you know, we connected, I guess it was maybe October of last year yeah. on something we both had the idea on. This is one reason I love you as well, because you approached me and what did you tell me that on that call you were so excited to share with me? Well, we wanted to do something. We wanted to participate in the political process and, and get people to vote. It's, it's a, the cornerstone of democracy. Yeah, you and I shared an idea. We dubbed it Tap the Vote. And the yep. goal wasn't to support one party or the other. It was merely to draw awareness to go out and vote for whoever you feel is the best yeah. candidate. And That's it was funny that you were Absolutely. And it was funny you had mentioned this to me because a couple months prior, I had the exact same idea. Wow. Completely I remember that. Yep. Separate from your idea. And I had approached a couple of breweries about getting involved in the project. And it seemed like a lot of breweries didn't even want to touch on anything that was borderline political. And we ended up going with the tap the vote campaign in your state of Colorado just to draw awareness you know, yep. to getting out and voting. And you made this fancy little logo i know you can't see it on your screen but a nice little tap the vote logo i still have one of those stickers and my, yeah. my son still loves wearing those stickers so <laughs> i think we did draw if even just a little bit of awareness to getting out to the polls i think it was a good effort yeah well but but as you saw as we saw there were a lot of breweries that told us i don't want to even touch that issue and that's sad to me it's it should not be a political issue. I know it has become one, but I think, I don't think a brewery can go wrong by encouraging people to participate in things like voting or access to voting or the furthering of civil rights or Black Lives Matter. I don't think you can go wrong because they're essential to the future of our country and maybe, and I think they're worth the risk. So I wish our trade was a bit more uh, vocal. And I had hoped the Brewers Association would step up and do some of that. And I love the Brewers Association, but I wish they would step up and take some heat and get the voice of craft beer in the discussion about democracy because it's too important to not do anything. As a great John Lewis, yeah. we, all, we all need to make good trouble. He's a hero of mine. And, uh, I, but yes, it's frustrating to me. But I do fully understand why a brewery who's had a, the worst year ever and is just trying to keep their people employed is reluctant to do that. But there are people in our trade that could do it and take the heat and be all right. No, I agree. And I do think our industry is getting better at having the, the harder – often uncomfortable conversations. So, yes. you know, while there still is room to improve, I think we're taking steps in the right direction to, I, you know, yeah. talk about these issues that are often hard to talk about, whether it's, you know, diversity in craft beer, whether it's politics, whether it's sexual harassment, I think craft beer is getting a better voice on topics like that. And they're, I, they're learning the right way to put it out there. Yeah, I agree with you. It's a very good thing. It's good. It's good progress. And it's overdue and our trade is, you know, 30 years ago, we were a country that everybody drank the same style of beer and uh, 
Everybody said that's just the way it's going to be. And craft beer turned that on its head. And that movement has spread around the world. There's no reason we can't do similar things for even more important subjects like voting and equality and justice and democracy. So maybe I'll, it'll be great in the future to do more of it. I know you would appreciate it because you think we think alike on that. So I would, but you've been lucky enough to actually get involved through your love of beer in a presidential campaign. <laughs> How did that even happen? Well, you know, when another thing I'm kind of, I'm proud of is that I helped, I led the charge to get a draft system in the governor's mansion in Colorado. <laughs> so when, when Hickenlooper became governor, I got in touch with him and I said, don't you think there should be some local beer flowing in there? And it took a while, but, but, but he loved the idea. And we put a draft system in there and the Colorado Brewers Guild put up the money for it. And, um, but so, and I've known him for a long time. Like I say, he's a hero of mine and I helped help the wind cup over the years. But, when he ran for president, uh, well, when he was when he re ran for re-election of governor, I put together some spoof political ads for him. They were sort of mock attack ads that, uh, well, John Hickenlooper's you know run governor. He's had the nerve to drink craft beer in a bar with the president of the United States because Obama came there. You know, is this the kind of leadership we want in Colorado? And at any with, heck yeah. So, but so when he ran for president. I got in touch with him and I said, look, I, 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 well, he got in touch with me, which was pretty exciting and said, you know, can you help me with my campaign? So I I provided some, you know, advice about how to reach the beer trade. And I'm just going to say it. If he had employed that advice earlier, I think he'd be <laughs> And with that said, Marty, I'm going to pull up one of the little spots you did for him. So okay. I know the audio might not have been fully there the first time we did this, but let's give this a shot and see if everybody can enjoy this little video of that All you right. made for him. Okay. Okay. As a successful governor, mayor, and craft brewer, I understand America's prices of division. But we can't let easy IPAs and pastry stout divide our nation any longer. You can't let partisan politics divide us either. The fact is, I'm the only presidential candidate with 16 years of exceptional success working with Democrats and Republicans and ale and lager yeast. We need a president who has created balanced budgets and balanced beers. We need a president to tackle climate change and contemporary Belgian-style goose lambic. I want to bring my proven experience and the bridge-building, collaborative spirit of craft beer to the White House. Can you help me do it? You'll guarantee that I'm in the presidential debates in Detroit and American beer culture is there too. I want a president who understands healthcare and a South German-style have bison. We need a president. I want a president. 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 We need a president. A president whose only ties to Moscow are Imperial Russian styles. Help me bring harmony, hope, and hops to Washington. That was definitely a fun little spot you did there. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for sure. That was a lot of fun. Uh, that was our... You know, late in the campaign, we put that together to reach out to beer drinkers. And uh, yeah, he, 
I wrote the script and Gabe Dorn, he has a company here in Denver, Denver Film Company. I want to mention him because he, he shot that as well as the first project we did. Well, one of them was the Rocky Mountain Oyster South video, but he's really good. And he, he filmed that, edited it. And, uh, yeah, it was great fun. But, but Hickenloop is a wonderful guy. I think he would have made a fantastic president, but I'm glad he's our senator. Uh, I'm glad he's up there. So. You've made a ton of fascinating friendships and relationships over your career in craft beer, Marty. I mean, just talking to you is like a who's who of anything in the industry because you've just, I mean, you're so passionate about what you do, but you're so genuine in what you do as well. And I think that's Thank probably, you. and you're a funny guy. So I think <laughs> it all goes hand in hand in just your energy you bring to things. It's the passion you bring towards the industry. Well, thank you. I found a funny photograph. Can I show it to you real quick? Yeah, of course. Uh, well, I was, I cleaned up my shelf behind me. I thought I better at least tidy it up a little bit. But I found this photograph. Can, can you see this? I can see it. Okay. <laughs> that was from, uh, I, in my Oscar Blues days, we, we did, I did a little stunt where we called out Jim Cook for not, uh, for, for making, for talking bad about beer and cans. So it became a big hit and he and I became friends. So he's, he's always been my crapper here. I love that man. But, but this is while touring the brewery, I snuck off the tour and, and acted like I was putting this sticker over the face of Samuel Adams, but I did exactly <laughs> stick it on the picture. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Now looking at all your ideas over the, your decades in the industry, you know, uh, not everybody can go 10 for 10. Everybody yeah. makes mistakes every now and then. And, I mean, geez, you had Rocky Mountain Oyster Stout, which was a success. So, yeah. I mean, that speaks to just your streak in the industry. But has there ever been an idea that you had that you thought in your mind, this is fantastic, that didn't pan out quite as well as you hoped? Oh, yes, for sure. And so uh, several that I'm glad <laughs> we didn't do <laughs> in retrospect. It could have been damaging to uh, my, my career <laughs> and that brewery. Um, but the thing about ideas and humor is you can't be afraid to take to attempt things or even even if it's other all kinds of ideas many great entrepreneurs would say you can't be afraid to try stuff all of them will not be successful some will be duds but you do learn from them um hopefully they won't do anything that ends your career sets things back too far but and humor is a tricky thing um but yeah, they're not all hits. I mean, I've done, I, I did something for Cask. I think I sent you that picture of the CAG. That, that was our April Fool's joke where we created this really light, super portable, you know, high volume <laughs> project. And, you know, it, it didn't have the, the, the stickiness of the, of the Rocky Mountain Oyster Stout, but it was funny. And, and sometimes that's the whole point of being attempting humor in a crab brewery just to be freaking funny and show people that you have a sense of humor. You don't take yourself or your trade or your business too seriously. And you like to have fun. That's the payoff alone right there. Um, but yes, they don't all make it. They're not all, they're not all hits just like my songs. <laughs> but you have fun making them. And I think that's the beauty of where we are in the state of craft beer right now, when everything is, so social media based sometimes, you can have a funny idea, you can throw it out to the world, but you might get crickets. And you know what? Yeah. The world forgot the idea and we moved past it. But you know, 
sometimes you throw out that idea and it just takes off and goes viral. So I, I think there's no shame in trying something because that's that's what we have to do. We have to innovate. We have to get a little creative and have some fun. Yeah. Well, well, Rick will tell you, you know, I work with Green Finance and we did that series of, of commercials that spoofed on, you know, the F-bomb, but it was actually funding. But for him and for he and I, just the sheer fun of doing it has been a great motivator over the past year or two, you know, because it's a, it's a laugh. It's a good time. And life is too short not to laugh and have a good time. And when you spend a third or more of your life working, it's even more important to have fun and laughs on the job of all places. That's the most important place to have laughs and enjoy yourself. So, yeah, I, I want breweries yes. out there to, to find their funny bone, embrace it, use it. It's good for you. It's very important. Yeah. And as cliche as it is, Marty, you're probably one of those guys, I think you'll agree, who's probably never worked a day in your entire life because you absolutely love what you're doing. Well, there is that, that old adage, and uh, it is very true. I, I, I agree. I'm one of the many lucky people in craft beer that feels like I haven't worked in <laughs> 25 years because it's been so daggone fun. You know, I mean, in the early days, and I guess our trade maybe has lost a little of it. That, and I've often equated it with music and sort of punk rock or, you know, Charlie Papazin, who has become a friend of mine, which is surreal and wonderful in itself. Uh, I have re often referred to him as the Muddy Waters, Chuck Berry, Joey Ramone of beer. He took the status quo and upended it. And that's what we have all done collectively over the past 30 years. And that has been especially satisfying, you know. When I went into a, a place in Amsterdam and left cans of Dale's Pale Ale, and the guys laughed at the cans, and they said, oh, you Americans, you, you just put a bunch of hops in your beer to hide the flaws. You don't know what you're doing. And then five years later, my brother was back in Amsterdam at that bar, and the owner told him, we're going to open a bar that just carries American beer in cans. Right. We, we have upended the status quo around the world. That is really fun and satisfying. And we've done it with this delicious, artful beverage that makes you feel good. It's good for your health. It gives you goosebumps. It brings people together. How can we not have fun on the job? Right. No, exactly. And I want to Wait. ask one final question as we wind down this chat, which I've had an absolute blast. Me too. Now, Marty, you love music. You love beer. If you were going to organize some sort of collaboration beer with a musical artist, who would be your ideal musician band that you would organize some sort of project with? Uh, well, I'm a longtime fan of Bruce Springsteen. So that would be fun, though. I don't think he's much of a beer guy. Um, I have done collaborations, you know, over the years with some some beer entities. And um, in my Oscar Blues days, I put together something called the Singing Twelve Pack, where you got when you bought a twelve pack, you got a CD of music in it. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> and we did what, Marty? What's a CD? <laughs> let me let me explain this to you, Andrew. Um, <laughs> but I have some current artists who I really like. Uh, um, 
Sierra Farrell is a really wonderful singer-songwriter. Early James is a guy I would love to do something with. He has a great song that's sort of a an anti-drinking song called High Horse that's been my, one of my favorite songs of the year. There's an artist, Caitlin Canty, a singer-songwriter. I've just discovered. I've been just down the rabbit hole of her music lately. Um, but I like good rootsy music, but there's a lot of them. I mean, it, it, for Brewery Finance, we put on a honky-tonk event every year during the Craft Brewers Conference. And the, the event we did in Nashville during the CBC then was one of the greatest nights of music I've ever seen. And it was a gas to be a part of it. Just, you know, Nashville is full of people who make real country music, not the commercial pop stuff. And uh, it was just an amazing night of music. But Who is your headliner? Um, well, I have the, the post. The, the poster right on my wall, the cowpokes were the headliner. They were awesome. And Sierra Farrell sat in with them. That's the first time I'd ever seen her live. I was just so thrilled. I just discovered her music online about a month before. Uh, but there was a guy also on the bill of the opening act. His name is Tim Bolo. He now goes by the name Timbo. He's way off the radar. He has one of the most soulful, emotive, husky, voices you will ever hear. I have goosebumps right now just thinking about him. He opened up the set and did some classic country in a couple of his songs and a Smokey Robinson song that just had me, I, I, had, um, I had tears rolling down my cheeks. It was just awesome. So he was on the bill. Um, it was just a great night of music in a setting <clears throat> that hasn't changed since 1954. And uh, I mean, and we had great beer from local craft breweries there. Uh, we had allies in the trade that were there. Charlie was there. The people from Dry Dock came out. They're almost their whole staff, their head brewer, and and hung out with us. And it was just one of those rare nights where, you know, two of the world's best things, as you mentioned, beer and music, were in one great space. And there were senior citizens swing dancing with tattooed hipsters and vintage, you know, cowboy garb. It was just. It was just awesome. <laughs> no, and I got, sounds like a fantastic. And I got to play a few songs before the show started in the in the bar with a friend of mine who lives there. So, no, it sounds like a fantastic event. <laughs> <laughs> no, you answered enough, Marty. You know, I just crave those days again where we're going to have oh. live music together, beer together. I, I think the world is getting to a better place, and I can't wait for those times. And I know you're probably just as excited as I am. Yes. For sure. Yes. It, it's going to be great to get in a room with people and hug and shake hands and drink beer and gaze at some musical artists and just have our minds blown. It's going to be, I know if, if I've learned one thing over the past year that I didn't fully appreciate every gig I ever played as much as I should have. Cause, um, and I'm sure music listeners feel that way too. You know, we all took for granted the joy of being in a room people listening to live music and having a good beer and uh to, to return to that oh lord it's gotta be our heads are gonna explode our hearts are gonna pop out of our chest it's gonna be too much be great. and i can't wait yeah. and marty 
really appreciate you sharing, you know, so many stories from your life today and just your overall great attitude with everyone. I always enjoy our conversations. I cannot wait. I'm holding you to a beer in September. We'll coordinate that you know at a later date, but I'm absolutely looking forward to that to put it on my schedule. But thanks again for coming to hang out with me today and I'll see you in a few months. Okay. And I want to thank you for this chat and the great fun. And uh, I hope the people watching learn something from it, but I really appreciate all you've done. I've Really enjoyed our friendship over the past year. And um, if I don't see you in Denver for the Crab Brews Conference, I'm going to be coming to Norfolk and you and I are going to have a beer somewhere. I'm holding you to it. Okay. I'll buddy. see you soon, Marty. Have a All great right, day. Man. Bye. Bye.